So we have to start thinking about the question, who was Melchizedek? What was his role? What was his purpose in Scripture? And what can we learn about God and about what God is doing today by considering this, honestly, obscure figure from ancient times? What God has given us is this remarkable mystery in the midst of the Bible. It is a glimmer of greater things and a partially hidden revelation of his greater glory. And God often uses things that don't seem to fit. They don't seem to follow the normal pattern. These times are a historical dissonance, a hiccup in the predictable flow of history and time. And these dissonances are quite intentional by God. They cause us to stagger just a moment. They give us space to consider the greater things that are going on. They give us time to grasp and to grope after the larger patterns and the truer pictures that lie just beyond our normal reach. As Paul said when he was addressing the Areopagus, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has appointed their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they might seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being... As also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something to be shaped by art or man's devising. You see, God is even now calling us to turn from our sin and to seek him with all of our hearts. And to that end, he has chosen to use men and women to carry the message of peace to a dying world. And into that realm of decay, he sends his children with a message of hope. So the first thing we see is that in great darkness, great light can shine. So this man, Melchizedek, he he was raised up as the greatest light in the midst of the greatest darkness. Now, we know that Salem was a city that we don't know a lot about, but most scholars presume that Salem was probably the city that later became known as Jerusalem. Salem means peace. Jerusalem means, uh, depending upon your translation, either the teaching of peace, the possession of peace, the foundation of peace, the vision of peace, uh, depending on how you you translate the initial part of that. And this land wherein Melchizedek was king was in the possession of the Canaanites. It was a land that was given over to the pagan worship of the most debased kind. If we were going to take time to recount all of the human sacrifices and ritual abuses of their worship, it would literally curdle milk. And yet we also are guilty of these crimes and so much worse, for we pretend that we are somehow more pure than they are. And to do this is to deny Scripture. What does the Scripture tell us in Romans 3.23? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's important for us to understand that when we look around us and we see the darkness of the world in which we live, that this darkness is indicative of all of mankind. And that we ourselves have been delivered from that darkness by the grace of God that is not our own doing. And that we ourselves have been delivered from that darkness in the midst of the darkness that still prevails. And so often we want to see the darkness end. We, we wish that we lived in better days. We wish that we lived in smoother times and easier company. And, you know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was just last week, the Chinese proverb, which is actually a curse, may you live in interesting times. Um, We live in very interesting times, and we don't like it very much. 
But here's what you need to know about it. Shine a candle in the middle of the room right now. How much light does it really put out? Not so much you can see. But if the room were pitch black and you light that same candle, you could see it a great distance off. You see, to shine the glory of God and to see it most clearly requires the darkness in which we live. Now, God is completely capable of showing his glory in good times, and we will find that out in heaven. But right now is this time that God has given to us and the opportunity that he has given to us to display his glory. And these dark days, as horrible and as terrible as they are, simply mean for us that we have all the more opportunity to shine his glory more profoundly and more clearly than generations that may have been before us. Instead of complaining about it, instead of grumbling about it, instead of desiring to be delivered from it, let us strive to live in a fashion that is worthy of the days to which we have been called to serve. You've been given great opportunity to serve your king because the days are evil. Great opportunity, tremendous opportunity. And in the midst of the tremendous opportunity, we are being called to live in a manner more faithfully than other generations have been called. They were permitted a little bit of a slide. They were permitted the opportunity to kind of go their own way and live for their own pleasure. And frankly, that's part of what created these days. But understand that because we live now and because these are the days that have been appointed unto us, there is a responsibility that is given to us to live our lives with purpose, to live our our lives with our eyes on the kingdom of God, so that even as Melchizedek, in, in a kingdom surrounded by pagans, was a priest to the Most High God, raised up by God for this moment, and we know so little about him, and we'll get into who I think he actually was and, and some of the mysteries that surround that. There's a lot of time for that. But what I want to think with you about it today is just in the aspect of what it means to live in dark days. And how even though the glory might be obscured by the darkness that's around us, that simply calls us to live with truer purpose. It simply calls us to live with greater intensity and greater intention. It gives us the opportunity to display Christ all the more clearly when we ourselves recognize that the darkness, rather than being a curse upon us, is simply an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to declare the truth of who God is and to declare it with power and with purpose and with intention. Because you were delivered from the same things that you see in the world around you. You might think to yourself, oh, I would never do that. Well, I promise you, given time and opportunity, you would, and more. We all would. And to deny that is to deny the truth of Scripture. Because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this creates a darkness over the soul of every person who lives. Whether they're aware of it or not, they are living under the just condemnation of God. And they are living under the reality that God himself is fiercely angry with them and that there is a judgment looming over them. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And they are hanging under that judgment. They are already delivered unto that judgment unless God mercifully chooses to give them life. It's the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not something purchased, it's not something earned, and it's certainly not something deserved. 
Beloved, we have been given the opportunity to share the truth of who Christ is with a people that need it perhaps more desperately than anybody else ever has. It's a great opportunity and it's a great privilege to be permitted to live in times such as these. We just have to shift the way that we think about it. We have to change our own perspective because all too often we're wrapped up in our desire for our own comfort. All too often we're wrapped up in our desire for our lives to be better than they are right now. We're wrapped up in a personal, selfish, insulated, insular life. And if we're going to live that way, we're going to fail at what we are produced to do. We have to open our eyes. We have to understand the truth of why God has placed you in this moment. Beloved, hear this. Hear me carefully. These days, as dark as they are, were appointed for you. And what that means, though, is that you were appointed for them. God created you when he created you into the life that he put you in for the purpose of the service of the king in days such as this. You were made for these times. And you may feel like it's overwhelming. You may feel like you're not equipped for it. You may feel like you're not able to do what God is calling you to do. I assure you those are the lies of the enemy. I assure you that whatever God is calling you to, he will also provide the opportunity and the power and the strength and the wisdom and the ability to do everything that he calls you to do. Because it is never you doing it, but him doing it through you. All you are is a pipeline. Your job is to be available for him. Now, this city of Salem, which I believe will become later known as Jerusalem, was in the possession later of the Jebusites. Now, the Jebusites were a people that sort of plagued Israel, and we don't hear a whole lot about them because they kind of played it low-key. We know that the Philistines were always attacking, the Canaanites were running them around. There's all these different ones. The Jebusites were among them, and they were the people that both Judah and Benjamin, Scripture says in, in Joshua and then later in Judges, failed to drive the Jebusites out. And so they live among them to this day, at the time of the writing of the Scripture. So the Jebusites played it a little smarter. They, they played it just enough, we're going to be your enemies, but we're also going to live among you and be your friends. And, and so that's kind of actually, it's an interesting conclusion for me because I see that in the world around us. I see the world trying to establish itself with the church saying, look, if you'll just leave us alone on these issues, we'll leave you alone on your issues. You just let us go our way, we'll let you go your way. Now, you need to understand that's a lie. It's always a lie, but that's what they're telling us. And many people in the church are falling for this tripe. Many people in the world are falling or in the church, are falling for this idea that if we'll just let the world have their way, that they'll leave us in peace. Well, you don't have to be a great student of history to know that every time the church capitulates on that ground, the church gets slaughtered. And that's exactly what goes on with the Jebusites. They're always a thorn in the side, and they're always kind of playing it slyly. Judah and Benjamin both failed to remove them. It was the city who David finally captured. You remember how he captured it? It's kind of a cool story. They climbed up the well shaft and entered the city by night. So always keep the well outside the walls or inside the walls is a better option for you. Um, But I digress. So be aware that this city, though we look at Jerusalem as the city of God, it had a long history of being a thorn in the side of Israel. 
It had a long history of being a plague. It had a long history of being a problem. And in the end, um, it was important that David took this city because we know that Jerusalem became the place where God established his temple, where God established the seat of his, his dwelling among his people, where the sacrifices would be made, and most importantly, where the sacrifice of Christ would be offered and where God himself would intervene on behalf of his people to atone for their sin once and for all and set them free from the bondage of their own rebellion. God had a special purpose in mind, and he had a special place in mind, and so I find it extremely appropriate and extremely compelling that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who would later become the city of Jerusalem, is the one who offered this this blessing to Abraham and came before him saying, God's going to do great things with you. Um, It's kind of a cool, circular sort of thing. Now, Melchizedek was this kingly priest. And I want to go back. We read it last week, but let's read it again. So turn back to Genesis chapter 14. And we'll look at the three or four verses that we actually have that tell us what we know about Melchizedek. There's actually more written about him in the New Testament than there is in all of the Old Testament. There's more written about him in Hebrews chapter 7 than there is in all of the Old Testament combined. So here's what we see. Genesis chapter 14, starting at verse 18. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a tithe of all. So what we see is that this priest who came out to offer blessing did what was the duty of the king to do. It's not the priest's job to provide for his people. That's the king's role. So Melchizedek comes out and he offers bread and wine, not just to Abram, but to his entire household, all 300 of his fighting men and everybody else that was traveling with him by supply and support. This is not a small thing. He provisioned the army of Abraham. And in doing so, he acted in a manner of a king over his subjects. He acted in a manner of a king over those for whom he was responsible. Now, Melchizedek had no actual ties to Abram, except that Melchizedek was the priest of God Most High, and Abram belonged to God Most High. We see that in this exchange, Melchizedek is acting as a kingly priest. The work of giving provision belongs to the king, and Melchizedek did this service. And also note that Melchizedek offered them bread and wine. Who else offers bread and wine? Jesus does, right? Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 15, Nehemiah is praying to God, and he says, You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in and to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. John chapter 6, verse 32, and following, Jesus offers us some clarification on exactly what that was. 
John chapter 6, starting at verse 32. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the word. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Now we're going to read on, but I want you to pay attention to the fact that what Jesus is doing right here is professing ownership. He's taking kingly responsibility for those who have been given to him. He's confessing, those that are mine are mine, and I'm going to take care of them. I'm not going to lose any of them. I'm going to provide for them. I'm going to give care to them. They are my responsibility. He is being a king. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven, and said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. As it is written by the prophets, they shall be taught by God, and therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he who eats my, my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, but he who eats this bread will live forever. So Jesus expressed the truth that the manna was a picture of himself, that he was the living bread which God gave in the desert in some form or another that we can't fully understand. But beyond that, he's expressing that his coming now is the spiritual bread of life which will sustain us. Now, Jesus is not condoning cannibalism, clearly. He's not saying, you have to actually eat my body and eat my, drink my blood, and, and we'll get into the why that's, we can know that's true in just a moment. What he was talking about is something spiritual. He's talking about feeding on who he actually is. He's talking about the fact that he, as our king, is taking on the responsibility to provide what we need to sustain us. 
He's taking on the responsibility to make us absolutely dependent upon him for all of our needs. Now, whether we recognize that or not, that's the truth of our existence. Whether we recognize that we're utterly dependent upon him for even our next breath, or whether we think that we're able to do a whole lot of things all by ourselves, regardless of what God does or doesn't do, it doesn't change the reality of what it is. Part of our responsibility as Christians is to bring those hidden truths out to the fore and to say, look, this is the truth of how the world functions. This is the Christ who sustains us. This is the Christ who made us who we are. And in everything that we do, it's our responsibility to be faithful to him. Now look at Matthew chapter 26. And let's carry this forward just a little bit more. Matthew 26, starting at verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. Now, we can know now that Jesus is not condoning or extremely expressing a desire for cannibalism because he's not holding out his arm and saying, here, eat. What's he doing? He's giving them the bread. He's giving them a symbol. He's giving them something by which to remember So the whole idea that the elements of the Lord's Supper become the virtual body and blood of Christ, it's ridiculous and it's heresy. Jesus is speaking about something deeper. He's speaking about something truer. So he says, this bread is my body. Take and eat. Then he took the cup and he gave them drinks to them all. And he said, drink from it all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So he offers them to partake of the offering. And he offers them to partake of the manna of God. He's functioning as priest in this moment. He's he's giving them representation that the offering is about to be made in the presence of God. That the true offering which has been foretold from all of creation is about to be offered. And he's giving them the opportunity to partake of that offering. Now this is really fascinating because who's allowed to eat of the offering? Only the priests. So what's he telling them about who they are? They're no longer just servants, but they're also priests of their God. There there is a priesthood of the believers. There is something eternal given to us here in this place. Now, what Jesus is doing is he is providing for them the offering. He's giving them this sustenance as the priest. He's also giving them this sustenance as their king. Again, he's taking the responsibility to give them what they need. He hasn't looked to them to bring the offering in, which is how it usually worked. The priest would offer the sacrifice, but who brought it in? The people. It was their sacrifice. It was their gift unto God. It was their offering of atonement. Who brought this sacrifice in? God did. Jesus did. God provided this sacrifice. It is God's offering on our behalf. Now, when we come to Jesus as priest, he also then serves as king and prophet. These things are all closely tied together. He is one fulfillment of all three offices. We've spoken about that at length. When we come to Jesus, we get all of him. You don't get to just partake of the offering without submission to him as king. 
This is important for us to understand because it is often presented contrary to that truth in the culture of, our, of the church today. Often we're told, yes, you can come to Jesus as Savior, and then later you can confess Him as Lord if you want some sort of deeper Christianity. But you need to understand those things are never separated in Scripture. He cannot be Savior apart from being Lord, because when you take Him as priest, you receive Him as King. He saves those who are His own. Period. And for us as Christians, it's an important distinction that we need to cling to. We need to understand what this means. Because God, according to Romans 5.8, is demonstrating His love for us in that while we're still actively opposed to Him, still hating Him, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we're still contrary to everything that God commands and desires, we are being provided for. It's a remarkable truth. It's a glorious reality wherein God says to us, I have taken care to make sure that you have everything that you need. Look at with me at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 9. Paul writes about this receiving of Christ and who he is. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. We're going to come back to that point in a little bit. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Beloved, this is our hope. This is the only hope that we have. And that hope is that God will do what he said he would do. You can't strong arm him into saving you. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't buy your way out of hell. You have to take God at his word. And God says to us that if we will confess Christ as both Savior and Lord, then we will be saved. That if we trust Him to do what He said He would do without any other strings attached or any other provisions made, any other attempt to buy out or work out our salvation by our own labor, He will save us because He said He would save us. And if we allow other thinking to creep into our minds and into our lives and into our hearts and especially into our proclamation of the gospel, we will find that we become utterly ineffective for the kingdom of God. We have to stand firm on the line of what God has said is the core of salvation. We have to stand firm on this. Because this has been the message of God throughout all of history, throughout all of his interaction with the people. It's not up to us to save ourselves. It never has been. It's up to God to keep his word and do what he said he's going to do. Now, I understand that sometimes we feel like we're not qualified to do this. So Melchizedek also gives us this really cool picture that God is capable of raising up people and and tools for his own use anywhere, anytime, any place, no matter what. God is not limited by our inability. God is not hindered by our weaknesses. God is not in any way stopped 
from doing what he sorts or sets out to do. Out of nowhere, this man Melchizedek appears to bless Abram. The first time we encounter Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is right there in Genesis chapter 14. There's no mention of him before, and there's no mention of him afterwards, except in a couple of brief allusions that are just, hey, remember that guy. We have no further history of him. We have no continuing record of him. There is no extra biblical writing that gives us any more detail about him. What we have is what we see here. We have Genesis chapter 14. We have a couple of places in the Psalms, and we have Hebrews. And all of it points back to Genesis chapter 14. There is nothing else really given. And the writer of Hebrews here in the first three verses says he is without mother or father. He's without a history. He's without these things that would help us. So God just out of nowhere brings this man Melchizedek to bless Abram. Now why would he do it that way? Well, partly to teach us something about Christ. Partly because we needed this reference. But interestingly enough, partly because he wanted to bless Abraham at this moment. Do you see the significance of that? Do you understand that if God wants to do something in your life, you don't have to go through all the strings and trials and labors and manipulations to try and make it happen so that you can follow the trail of how God brought it to be. You don't have to run those trap lines. You don't have to be the one who sorts out exactly how you're going to make sure that God provides for your needs. Because when it's time to provide, God will provide in the way that he is already determined to provide, and he can do it out of thin air. He can do it completely without any further former contribution from you, without any indication from you of what you need or want, without you plugging your case with anybody else. God will provide. And Melchizedek is a beautiful example of how God needs to, wants to bless Abram, and so he provides a man to do the job. He wanted to provide sustenance for Abram, and he wanted to receive Abram's worship and tithes. This is stunning, that just out of nowhere, God says, oh, here's my guy Melchizedek. I'm bringing him out. It's time to show him up on the stage for just that long. He's going to accomplish a tremendous purpose. He's going to do what I set him out to do. He came to honor Abram, to give God's blessing to him, and he came also to receive honor from him. You see, when God provides for us, it's always that two-way street. We receive from him, and we return to him praise and honor. We receive from him, we return to him worship. We receive from him, we return to him the best of what we have, the best of what we are. It's poor, it's unworthy, it's ineffective, it's inefficient, but still God receives it as if it were exactly what he desired. It's a glorious, beautiful thing, and and it's something that we should beware of always, because whatever it is that God is doing in your life, you have still the responsibility to return worship and praise for what he's given you. You have still the responsibility to return worship and praise for the blessings that he has heaped upon you. Whether you recognize them as blessings or not is completely inconsequential. 
Whether it's something painful or something pleasant, it is still God blessing you because he's doing in your life exactly what he set out to do. And our obligation is to give him praise and worship. Our obligation is to return to him what he deserves. So, it's also important for us to recognize that the life story of Melchizedek is not the story. And so often we look at the people in the Bible and the whole story is their life story. We see what God is doing. We see the progress of their character or the diminishment of their character. We see them in their context. We see them in the circumstances and the struggles and the trials. And we make of that the story. And part of that is good practice and part of that is true. Context is king, remember. Context, context, context. Well, Melchizedek stands out as this one who breaks that rule. Because his life story is not the story because we don't know it. We're not given this story anywhere. We know little to nothing about him. And still he accomplishes his purpose. Still he accomplishes what he set out to do. Now this should give us hope. Because a lot of times we look at ourselves and we think, well, my story is not all that grand. My my story is not all that important. And, And there has been a great push in the church for, for as long as I can remember, that your testimony is your story being told to other people. And there is a place for that. But I would contend that your testimony is the story of Christ. And your story is secondary to that story. And we need to shift our focus on this. Because honestly, we all have a story, but there's only one Christ. And we need to be sure that we're telling his story more than we're telling ours. We need to make sure that we're telling his story more than we're telling our story, our testimony, our trials, our whatever. We need to make sure that the focus of what we're doing is him and his glory and his power and his truth. So we see that this man has appeared and in an unlikely place and an unlikely time, he is the vessel used for God's glory. Now, it's not necessary for Melchizedek to be a pre-incarnate Christ for this to work. Although I think that he is, and we'll get to that in the weeks ahead. Even if he's only a man, he is still the power and the point of what God is doing. And he is still the power and the point of it, which displays the greatness of God. So, like I said, I think that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. There's your spoiler alert. I'll unpack all of that in the weeks to come. But even if he's not... And, and I need to be completely honest with you, some of the greatest minds in church history say I'm foolish and wrong by standing in this position, but it's still my conviction. Even my hero, John Owen, my, my hero of the faith, my great theologian that I run to, he thinks I'm a fool, but that's okay. He's dead, <laughs> so he can't really argue with me. <laughs> they being dead still live and still speak. Okay, I, I digress. Even if Melchizedek is just a man, How awesome is it that God raised him up and prepared him for this time and prepared him for this place and did this work all behind the scenes for that three-verse span? Isn't that amazing? Isn't it remarkable that God is always at work doing what he's doing? And, beloved, hear me. You may feel like your life doesn't matter, like your life is completely inconsequential and completely without impact. But you don't have any idea whose life you're those three verses in. And as far as you may ever know, nobody's ever going to tell your story. But somebody is being impacted by your faithfulness for the king. 
And God is doing that work behind the scenes. The work that God intends to do, he has largely done through human vessels. Now, we tend to think that we're arbiters of who is able to do what, or who is qualified to do what, or who should do what, or who shouldn't do what. We tend to think that um, people better check with us before they set out to do something for God. The apostles had the same struggle. Lord, Lord, they're, they're prophesying in your name. And Jesus said what? If they're not against us, they're for us. Leave them alone. Now, this doesn't preclude us standing firm on issues that God has spoken clearly about. For instance, you think about who's qualified to be a preacher. Look at me at 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 9, Paul writes this. In like manner also that let the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but with which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, that's just part of the biblical explanation of why women preachers are not permitted according to Scripture. God has established that boundary, and God has established that rule. That is not the rule of man. That is the rule of God. That is the working of God to establish those boundaries. However... We also tend to believe that people have to be educationally qualified to be preachers. Got to go to seminary. Got to get an education. I defy you to tell me where that's found in Scripture. In fact, think about how it's described in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. So we need to be attentive to the fact that there are some things where God has said, no, I am saying no, and I am forbidding what you are wanting to do. But there are other places where that prohibition, that's just our arrogance. That's just our hubris and our pride and our selfishness that refuses to submit to what God says. And we need to be careful about that. We need to be absolutely attentive to do what God says and no more and no other. We're not allowed to bend those rules. We're not allowed to change those things. We're not allowed to make them into something that they are not. Now, in some ways, the full humanity of Melchizedek could make this case even stronger. It could even remove some of our objection to God's calling in our lives. How many times do we refuse to do what God tells us to do because we don't feel qualified, or we don't feel ready, or we don't feel capable of what God is telling us to do? How many times have you heard the voice of God telling you to do something? You know he's speaking to you. 
and you find some reason not to do it. And usually that reason revolves around your feelings of inadequacy. Well, if Melchizedek is strictly human, there's an even stronger case for us obeying what God has said. There's an even stronger case for us to submit and do what God says. Because if God has a job for you to do, do you think he's so foolish as to not provide for you what you need to do to accomplish what he set out for you to do? Do you think that God is too stupid to understand that you have lack and you have need and therefore he better provide for you because remember he is your king and the king is responsible for provision. Amen? Nobody goes to war on their own dime. The king provides. That's his job. So we need to be aware that God will provide what you need in the time that it takes for you to do it. Now, he can absolutely produce what he needs to produce. Do you remember what John told the Pharisees when they came to observe the baptism? He cried out against them about being uh, children of Satan. And, and he said, you know, don't think for one minute that God cannot raise up, stone, or raise up for Abram children out of these stones. Remember? Remember that whole exchange where, where John was really blasting them and he said, you know, you're going to say that we're the sons of Abraham and therefore we're right. But you need to understand that God is capable of raising up children for Abram out of these stones. Or do you remember what Jesus said when those self-same Pharisees told him, Teacher, silence your disciples because the disciples were doing what? They were saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were professing Christ to be Messiah. And the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, make them shut up. And what did Jesus say? I tell you the truth. If they're quiet, what? The stones themselves will cry out. You see, God will do what he needs to do. And he will do it regardless of your involvement or your obedience. He will accomplish his ends. So sometimes we um, will hear people approach this whole question of our obedience from the ground of saying, Well, if you don't do it, those poor people that God was going to save are going to hell. Well, that's not true. Because God will save everybody that he set out to save. The problem comes, and what's the impact in your life? Here's a blessing that could have been yours. Here's here's a little bit of that that we're supposed to send on ahead. This becomes our opportunity. It becomes the chance for us to send good things on ahead. Because in the end... We have to recognize that there is a promised harvest. We have to recognize that God is doing a work, and he's doing a work in the world that he is inviting and challenging and calling and commanding us to have a part in. And Melchizedek appearing in the land of Canaan, surrounded by all of these godless people, is yet another pledge and assurance of the certain harvest of the Gentiles. Who were the people that the Jews thought God was dealing with? Just themselves. To the exclusion of all others. They believed that only they were going to be the people of God. Now God was indeed working with them, and at that time in history, they were the primary ones that he was working with. But they believed that nobody else ever would be. They believed that nobody else would ever be accepted into the kingdom unless they first became Jewish. But God said differently, and he said differently all the way back in the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. 
Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Or John chapter 10, starting at verse 7, Jesus speaking about this very issue said this. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But the hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Who are those other sheep that he's speaking about? It's not as the Mormons interpret it that Jesus came to America during his three days in the grave and preached to the American Indians. That's not what Jesus is speaking of. Who is he speaking to? Speaking to Jews. And to the Jew, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Us and y'all. And the Jews believe that if you were not a Jew, you were a y'all. All y'all. Everybody. All-inclusive. So Jesus, speaking to Jews, says, Guys, you need to be aware. I have other sheep, and they're not Jewish. Beloved, he's speaking about us. He's speaking about we who are not Jewish, we who are Gentile by birth, we who are made up of the rest of the nations of all of the earth. And I want you to pay attention to the inclusivity with which Jesus speaks about them speaks about us. I'm laying down my life for all of my sheep. I'm laying down my life for every single one that the Father is giving me. I'm laying down my life for my sheep because I love them. I I have given my heart to them. I have given my life for them. They are mine, and I care about them. This is the message of the gospel. This is the hope that is ours. The priest rising up in the midst of the Gentile pagan land of the Canaanites reminds us that God is at work all over the earth with every tribe and every tongue and every people. There is no one group anymore which is the people that God is only working with. There there is no longer any way by which we can say that, that we are the sole focus of God's labor and God's work. 
God is offering the truth of the gospel to every people on all the earth. It's important for us to understand this because the church, in America at least, has a history of being involved with, well, some racism. (laughs) And there's no excuse for this. The church should be on the forefront of erasing racism from the earth. We should be on the forefront of being, including every single people group. Now, I, I don't want to be giving you the you know, diversity, equity, inclusivity words because those are buzzwords in the culture and I'm not using them the way that they are. I'm talking about the fact that the gospel is offered freely to all. I'm talking about the fact that the gospel goes forth with power unto every tribe and every tongue and every nation of the earth. And, and the problem that all people face is this problem of sin where we started out this morning. And they need the same answer. And the same answer for the same problem is the shed blood of Jesus Christ applied to them and their submission to him as king over their lives. And beloved, it doesn't matter what color they are. It doesn't matter what language they speak. It matters that they need a savior. The church must be the death of racism. And those who name the name of Christ must kill every hint of racial prejudice in themselves and allow it no quarter in the world around them. It means both overt hatred and covert hatred. For instance, the issue of abortion is not just about human life. It is about human life. Never let anybody tell you it's anything different. But it's also racially driven. Margaret Sanger was a white supremacist who believed that racial eugenics was the solution for the, and I quote here, the black problem. Her intention with founding Planned Parenthood was to eradicate the black race from America. That's historical documents. Do you think it's not being done today? 80% of all Planned Parenthood clinics exist in primarily black neighborhoods. It's a slaughter. And yes, it's a slaughter against human life, but it is a very intentionally racially driven slaughter. The church should be screaming about this. We should be saying, absolutely not. Under no circumstances is this permissible on any ground. And yet we're silent about it because why? Maybe it's ignorance. Maybe we don't know. But I fear that for many it's that we don't care. We also can look at the subtle degradation used to make people seem to be less than they are. For example, the refusal by some to require voter identification. You say, how is that racial? Well, what is their case? How do they put it? Well, it's a problem for black people to have to have identification. Really? What are you saying about them? Well, you're saying they're stupid. You're saying they're completely incapable of just handling themselves like responsible adults. You're constantly degrading them in your attempts to give them something and make them dependent. Beloved, we should be fighting against this. And we should be fighting against this because it makes less of the people that you try to give them these things to. It diminishes them. Welfare always diminishes us no matter what color we are. But the programs are slanted very heavily to diminish a certain people. 
This is hatred. And this is racism. And the church should be screaming about this. The church should be saying, absolutely not, under no means, under no allowance. We must also understand on a positive note that the gospel is commanded to go forth to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation on the earth. We should be actively involved in world missions. God does not need us to carry the gospel. I'll say it again. He does not need us to carry the gospel, but he will accomplish what he set out to do. But it is our calling, and it is our opportunity to show our love for God and to show our love for our fellow man. It is an opportunity for us to carry the gospel with power and strength any place that God puts us. And that includes some very frightening places on the earth. It is our very best avenue to show our love for our fellow man, and it is a path by which we can lay up treasures in heaven. Matthew 6, starting at verse 19, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our refusal to do this hurts us far more than it hurts anyone else. I'll say it again. Nobody's going to go to hell because you were quiet. That's a wrong motive. God will accomplish his end, and he will save every single person that he intends to save. But you will rob yourself of the opportunity to participate in the work of God. You will rob yourself of kingdom rewards. You will rob yourself of the significance that your life is intended to have. And you will saddle and chain yourself down with the feelings of inadequacy and purposelessness that mark out our culture. And why do they mark out our culture? Because we have lived our lives for our own ease and our own pleasure with no thought to anything greater than ourselves. And that is a recipe for gloom and despair and misery and sorrow. If you do not live with something larger than yourself in the forefront of your focus, you become myopic in everything that you do. And just like any muscle will atrophy, it is not work. Your soul will atrophy from that kind of life. And we can look at the landscape of the American soul in the last 50 years and see that atrophy getting worse and worse and worse. So much so that we have an entire generation that thinks that the entire world owes them everything and requires nothing of them. I don't know that we've ever seen days this dark. Maybe we have. I'm... I'm, a small student of history but I can't think of a time when it was ever quite like this what an exciting time to be alive what a glorious time for us to be the people of God what an opportunity for us to show who our Christ really is because in this darkness you are the city set on a hill. In this darkness, you are the light and the glory of the gospel of Christ. And that should be your focus. In everything that you do, be the glory. Let's pray. 
Father, I ask that you give to us grace and purpose and power. I pray, God, that you would help us to understand that the things that you put in our lives are there to ultimately conform us to the image of Christ. And I pray, God, that as we think about what it means to serve, even though we may feel like we're not qualified, that we are being permitted to partake and to be glory that is hidden and that can be displayed in power and in truth. God, let us be that people. Let us show forth the glory of Christ and let us give honor to his name so that he might be exalted. Father, we desire this so that Christ, who deserves all things, receives the full reward of his suffering. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.